You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. So last week we started our new series on uh, the Minor Prophets, um, and, and I'm really excited about what God's going to teach us through this series. I don't know about you, but it's different coming to a book of the Bible that maybe you're, you're far less familiar with. I know for me in studying, it's super exciting because I don't have as much of a foundation or background or experience with some of these books that we're, we're in. Last week was kind of a cheat in the sense that if we were to go to a minor prophet that we're familiar with, Hosea is probably the one that we're most familiar with. So we kind of started off light last week with a book that a lot of us are maybe somewhat familiar with. We'd heard the, the correlation of Hosea and his um, love for uh, Gomer, who was unfaithful to him. Um, and when we see that correlation with the gospel and, and what Christ's love looks like towards those who are unfaithful to him and, and how he works to change that unfaithfulness, right? And so we saw that last week. We saw that Hosea's love for his unfaithful bride is a picture of God's steadfast love through Jesus to redeem and renew unfaithful man to him. And so we saw that the gospel is God's uh, love paid for the undeserving. Uh, we say that Gomer's not deserving of Hosea's love. We're certainly not deserving of God's love. And yet God chooses to love us, right? God chooses to change us. God chooses us uh, to be his people. We saw from Hosea chapter 11, verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the West. We saw how God is, is working to make us his children, right? He's working to where we hear his voice, we respond to his voice, and we are now faithful to his voice. So we saw that through the book of Hosea. We answered that question, what is love? Um, that moves us into this week, talking about the book of Joel. And, and we're going to see that the theme of Joel is tied to God's coming wrath and God's coming judgment. And what are we to do with that message of judgment and wrath that is to come. So let's jump right in this morning uh, to our summary sentence for today. Disruptive circumstances give us necessary reason to pause and examine our life with the goal being to repent of sin and return to God in faithfulness as we look towards the coming day of the Lord. Disruptive circumstances Give us necessary reason to pause and examine our life with the goal being to repent of sin and return to God in faithfulness as we look towards the coming day of the Lord. What Joel is going to help us see today is that crisis times in our life, um, and every generation has the, those types of crises that come up, not just personal crisis, but even national and maybe even global crises that come up. Um, and those are meant to cause us to pause and to reflect and to appropriately repent as necessary. Um, that God uses these type of things to, uh, to get our attention. Um, and that's certainly what we're going to see today in Joel. If you know anything about Joel, you may know that Joel talks about locusts, talks about grasshoppers, talks about these insects that were wreaking havoc on um, Israel's well-being, Israel's livelihood. Um, there's this plague that has come upon them and they're reaping the consequences of that plague. Their, their, their crops have been devastated, which means their animals are now being devastated because there's a lack of crops for them to eat. Um, and Joel is processing this crisis through what he knows about God's word. He's, he's a man who's immersed in biblical writings and it's helping him make sense of the tragedies around him. Um, so he's, he's not that different than us in that Today, we are individuals who are in the midst of a crisis, a national crisis, a global crisis, as we continue to, to navigate these waters surrounding COVID-19 and, and what are we to do and how are we to respond. Joel is a great example to us of how we are to take these type of crises and allow them to be filtered through the lens of God's word. And we're going to see how Joel goes back into previous Old Testament writings and draws upon what he knows about the character of God, what he knows about the purposes of God, right? To help him understand and process what is happening with these locusts and what does it mean for us moving forward? How are we to respond? How are we to change? And, and what potentially is coming in the future that even increases the need to change, right? Um, we said last week, prophets are God's spokesmen to call Israel and Judah back to God's covenant. That's what we see in the major and the minor prophets is that these are individuals that God anoints 
and, and, and divinely inspires them to write these prophecies with the purpose of drawing Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, Judah, the southern kingdom, the two tribes, back to the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. So as Israel and Judah start to wander off and do their own thing, they fall into sin, they fall into idolatry, the prophet shows up and calls them back to faithfulness. Right? We talked last week, why are, why are we even studying these? For our, our kids, I forgot to give their summary sentence. God judges sin in small ways today to help us prepare for bigger judgment later. We're going to see how the locust plague is a forerunner for potential other judgment that's to come. Right? Um, and, and then even down the road, the ultimate judgment that's to come. So for our kids, I'd want you guys to understand that we see God's little judgments all the time towards sin. Sometimes that's in our personal life. Uh, he brings judgment or discipline upon us. Sometimes it's towards the church. Sometimes it's towards our nation. Sometimes it's towards the entire planet. Um, and those mini judgments, those little judgments are meant to prepare us for greater judgments that are to come. It's meant to, to change our behavior, to change our attitude so that those future judgments maybe don't have to come, Okay. Um, we talked about why we're studying the Minor Prophets, to show the Bible is approachable, all aspects of it, to gain a greater picture of God's love, to see Jesus in the Old Testament. We're certainly going to see all three of those things uh, again today. Uh, we also see the main ideas of these prophets is to show the sovereignty of God, that he's always in control, to show his holiness, that he is always going to remain separate from sin, that he's not going to tolerate sin, that he's going to bring judgment and punishment and appropriate response to man's sin, but that it's also coupled with his love, that he's a God of grace and mercy and he makes provision even in the midst of our sin and rebellion for us to be saved and restored despite our rebellion. And we're gonna see those themes running through the book of Joel uh, today as well. All right, introduction to Joel. It's a book focused on a, a phrase or a term or a theme known as the day of the Lord, okay? You've probably heard that term before. You may not fully understand what it means, uh, but the day of the Lord is a very familiar concept here in Joel, and it's also a familiar concept moving forward into some of these other prophets. I took a Old Testament class in, uh, at Liberty, and, and one of those classes was on uh, this prophetic section of Scripture, and um, the, the professor was constantly talking about the theme of the day of the Lord, and he kind of broke up each book uh, as, as to who the day of the Lord was against, right? You have day of the Lord against this group of people, day of the Lord against this group of people, day of the Lord against this group of people. And so we're gonna see that running theme through some of these prophets. Today, we see kind of an introduction to the day of the Lord. It's kind of a universal day of the Lord. Joel is talking about this great day of judgment that's to come upon the whole earth where all the nations are gonna be subjected to God's judgment, all right. Um, specifically, though, Joel is writing to that southern kingdom of Judah. All right. The date is unknown. Um, we don't have like what we did with Hosea, where Hosea identified who was king at the time of his writing. Joel doesn't do that. Um, so there's some debate about when he's actually writing. Um, there's there's kind of two camps uh, of of thought here. Some people believe that Joel is writing much later in or, or much further in the past in Israel's history back in the ninth century, maybe during the, the reign of Joash, who was that uh, seven-year-old king who was rescued from his grandmother, who was trying to kill all the heirs so that she could be queen, right? You may be familiar with that story. Um, Joash came to reign in, in, at the age of seven. He was hidden and protected during those earlier years. And that may explain why there's no mention of king, because Joash, while he was the king at seven, there were elders and priests and others that were helping to lead the nation as he grew to the age where he was capable of doing that. Um, so some people think that's why uh, Joel doesn't mention a king. And instead, when he talks about calling the people to repentance, he talks about the elders and the priests leading the people to repentance. Other people think that uh, Joel was written after the exile when there weren't kings in Israel and that maybe that's why there's not a mention of it. I don't know that it really uh, matters tremendously, at least not for the points that I'm gonna make this morning. It doesn't matter when he wrote it. Um, what does matter is that he did write it, um, and that it's certainly relevant to us today, no matter when he wrote it um, in the past. He doesn't mention any specific sins, which is a little bit different than some of the other prophets. He simply announces that judgment is coming and probably assumes that we're familiar with some of the sins that Israel and Judah are guilty of. And so he doesn't, he doesn't specifically mention what sins to be repentant of, um, simply that they have sinned and that they need to repent to avoid judgment, Okay. 
Um, that, that day of the Lord theme is present, though, here. And, and I want you to kind of understand the day of the Lord terminology with this definition, okay? The day of the Lord are, or, or is specific times in history when God appears in powerful ways to both confront evil and save his people, okay? The day of the Lord is specific times in history when God appears in a powerful way to both confront evil and save his people. Now, sometimes we generally think of day of the Lord as a time of judgment, right? And it is. It is a day of judgment. But there's always a remnant in in God's judgment, right? There's always a, a group of people that are saved in the midst of that judgment. So when we think of day of the Lord, it is always a horrific, horrible, uh, devastating thing for a group of people, those who are being held accountable for their sin. But it's also a day of salvation for those who have been awaiting God's justice, who have been awaiting God's deliverance and God's salvation, right? So day of the Lord is any specific time in history where God kind of steps into the human narrative and, and works in powerful ways to confront evil and to save his people. Um, so you could think in terms of Egypt with the, the death angel coming through as that 10th plague uh, as a type of day of the Lord, where God steps in, God judges evil, he confronts evil, he deals with evil, he saves his people out of that, right? Um, you could say day of the Lord took place in the wilderness when the fiery serpent showed up in response to the grumbling and complaining of the people, right? And there was a group of people who were saved in the midst of that day of the Lord, right? Those who turned to the bronze serpent. But that is clearly a specific time in history where God stepped in in a unique and powerful way to deal with evil and to save his people. There's a lot of days where God doesn't specifically step in in this unique, powerful way, but he's always kind of dealing with evil, right? He's allowing evil's consequences to play itself out. We reap the consequences of the things that we sow, right? So it's not to say that, uh, all other days, God's not present and God's not working, right? But these are bigger days, powerful days, where God really makes his presence known in confronting evil and saving his people, all right? What we see in the book of Joel here is that our greatest need is to be saved from God himself. Um, our sin leads to consequences. We have offended a holy God, and his righteous anger is stirred towards man because of his sin, Right? And, and we need to be saved from God himself, from his wrath. And that's, that's exactly what he does. He makes provision for us to be saved from himself. Right? He sends Christ to bear the consequences of our sin. Christ gets day of the Lord judgment upon himself so that we can be set free. Right? So we can think of day of the Lord as the day of the cross as well. Right? Where, where God stepped into human history and punished our sin upon his son so that we could be set free right? A glorious day of the Lord for us as we were the remnant saved and set free from sin, right? A very difficult day for Christ who bore the sins of the world upon himself. These many days of the Lord, many, not M-A-N-Y, but M-I-N-I, these, these little days of the Lord point to this future time when God will confront evil and bring salvation to the entire world, right? So what we see in Joel He's going to label this, this, this locust plague as a type of day of the Lord. He's going to warn the people that other days of the Lord are coming if they don't get their lives right. And then he points to this great day of the Lord at the end of history where all the nations are gathered in what he calls the valley of decision where God will render his judgment against sinners and he will save the righteous, right? Um, some of this illusion is even found in, in the book of Revelation where we've already been. Revelation chapter 9. That's a passage that talks about locusts. Locusts coming upon the earth and tormenting human beings, right, as an act of judgment by God upon this earth. Revelation 14 is a passage where it talks about Jesus coming and reaping the harvest, not souls who have been saved, but reaping the harvest of the wickedness and bringing punishment and judgment uh, as he trods the grapes of the wine press. And we see that allusion here in Joel 2 where it talks about the, the nations being ripe with wickedness and, and the, the, the vats are overflowing with wickedness and, and God's here to, to punish that and to judge that and to deal with that. Um, these, these days of the Lord that we're talking about, they're meant, to, they're meant to disrupt our schedule temporarily to help us focus on eternity. Now, 
I think we still experience these type of days of the Lord today. Um, we have to be a little bit more guarded and a little bit more cautious about trying to declare day of the Lord on things that we see happening around us, right? Because sometimes pastors get in trouble when they try to jump in and say, uh, Hurricane Katrina is God's judgment or punishment upon a specific group of people, right? doesn't really bode well for the pastor who says that. Um, he typically has to backtrack um, unless he kind of stands his ground and then potentially loses his ministry for it. Um, I'm, I'm real cautious to try to label God specifically doing things for specific reasons if he hasn't spoken for himself on those things, right? But I do believe these disruptive circumstances, these, these big type things that happen, they, they obviously come from God, right? And that's probably where I'm gonna kind of stop as far as being very specific as to what else is happening, right? Like, I don't know if God is specifically judging specific types of sins or, or is responding to specific types of activity, right? But, but we certainly can't discount the fact that God's always in control of the circumstances around us, that he certainly uses these type of natural disasters and even human disasters for his purposes, right? He brings other nations in to bring judgment upon his people, to get their attention, to draw them back to him. He uses natural disasters to do that, right? What I can tell you is that it's probably worth our attention anytime these type of things happen for us to pause and reflect and repent as we're found to be under conviction, right? So whether it's 9-11 and, and you remember during that time frame, for those that are old enough to remember that, it brought a, an, a, an awareness to our country, right? It brought a time period in our country where people paused and reflect and, and, and came to church in, in, in ways that they hadn't previously done, right? Now, how much of that was lasting? Only God knows, right? But what it did do is it united us around something and it drew our attention to potential future dangers, right? What if, what if this isn't the only attack that's gonna happen? What if other things are to come? How should we respond? How should we deal with this, right? And for those of us that were Christians, um, it, it drew our attention to even future wars and rumors of wars and, and, what, and the meanings of those things, right? And that's where we have to be careful that we don't jump in and then try to reinterpret all of Revelation and say, oh, this is applying to this chapter and this is coming next. Like, I don't think that's the purpose. I do think the purpose, though, in these disasters and crises, particularly even what we're in right now, it is absolutely a time for us to pause, to reflect, to let God speak where he wants to speak, to allow God to convict where he wants to convict. I know probably for all of us, we could probably give testimony of how during this time of quarantine and social distancing and shutdown, there's been things that God has drawn to our mind and attention that if we hadn't slowed down, we might not have seen or heard. Things that we wanna do differently in our own life, things that we wanna do differently with our family. Um, these things are good for us because it forces us to stop and think a little bit. And that's certainly what was happening in Israel with this locust plague. They're having to stop and think and assess, why is God doing what he's doing? What do we need to do moving forward? And Joel gives them some indicators as to what they need to do, okay? Um, chapter one, give you a quick overview, and then we're gonna jump into some application and be done. Chapter one is the immediate day of the Lord for this, this people group in Judah. It's the plague of locusts, okay? Chapter one deals with this plague of locusts that has come upon them. It reminds us that God controls natural disasters, sometimes for judgmental purposes. We know for a fact that this was God moving and acting in judgment, because Joel tells us that. Is every swarm of locusts that comes upon this earth and devastating crops uh, sent for judgmental purposes? I don't know. I know it's a consequence of sin in general, right? Is God specifically working against a specific sin? I don't know, but it certainly gives us cause to, to pause and reflect when these type of things happen, right? And Judah was called to do that. Um, God was controlling this natural disaster. It was for judgmental purposes for them. It recalls the plague of locusts in Egypt, right? You'll remember that was one of the plagues that the Egyptians had to bear. It was something that the Israelites were protected from in Goshen, right? They didn't have to deal with that plague. And now all of a sudden the tables have been flipped and now God's people are experiencing a plague of locusts. And it's because God's holding them accountable for their sin too. They've experienced complete devastation in the midst of this plague. Um, specifically, let's look in Joel chapter one. 
It says, verse two, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? We've been asking that question ourselves lately, right? Has anybody ever experienced something like what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19? Grandparents, great-grandparents, have they ever experienced anything like this? Verse three, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Verse five, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. Man, the devastation has stripped the drunkard of being able to get drunk. All the wine's gone. All the harvest is gone. There are no grapes. There, there is no ability to make, they make wine. So he tells the drunkard, weep and cry because your source of happiness is gone. He goes on. So you got kind of that, that um, for, 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 for our sake, the, the worst of the worst, like, the, like this, this downtrodden, beaten um, individual in society who has given himself to substance abuse and is probably not contributing much to society. That guy needs to get right with God. Right? He needs to pay attention to this. But then maybe the, the, the person that we would perceive to be the best of the best, the most spiritual, he addresses the priest in verse nine. Look what he says. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourned the ministers of the Lord. Well, their attention is gathered because they can't offer offerings right now because they don't have any grain. They don't have any drink. It, it's all gone. The locusts have taken all of it, right? Um, what it shows is that everybody in society in Judah was being impacted by this. That's certainly true for the times that we're in today too, right? While we don't offer drink and offerings anymore, as a pastor, what we do has been disrupted greatly as well, right? Um, for for eight, eight, nine weeks, Adam and I sat here alone and, and, and tried to convey the word of God to you from a distance, right? Um, God's getting everybody's attention in Judah during this time of locusts. God's getting all of our attention during this time of COVID-19 as well. The question is, what is he trying to say to us, right? And are we gonna be quiet enough to listen and to hear and to respond to it? The elders and the priests are called to lead the people in prayer, repentance, and turning back to God. Look what verse 14 says. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. They're called to, to repent and to, to pray and to fast and to, to make things right. You go into chapter two and Joel begins to talk not about immediate day of the Lord, something that's happening right then and there, but he talks about an imminent day of the Lord, that if they're not careful, if they don't respond and do what's right, they haven't seen anything yet, that, that more judgment is to come. And in chapter two, Joel begins to describe this dark army that leaves the land in waste. And it's, and it's similar to the locust, kind of takes on the, the picture of the locust, but in Joel chapter two, Verse one, look what it says. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Joel is picturing this, this coming army that could show up on the scene if things don't get better to bring even further destruction and devastation. I don't know how many of you have seen the old movie Willow, um, made like in the 80s, right? Like this classic, like mystical movie, um, kind of bred out of the Lord of the Rings type uh, 
type setting. Um, but there's a scene in there where there's this army that's doing something very similar. And this, this uh, general of another army talks about it. And he says, look, this army can't be stopped. They're devastating everything in their path, right? Every army that goes up against them is defeated. The, the land that they leave behind them is, is, is just desecrated, right? So I read this and I kind of have that image in my mind, this, this unstoppable, dark army that God is going to use upon Judah if they don't repent and turn to him. That's the picture that we see here in chapter two. And, and what's being desired here is a, is a change of heart. Look what it says in verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, because right before this it says, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who execute his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure this great day that's coming? Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind them, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. True change is desired. He says, rend your heart, not just your garments. Don't just tear your garments and tell me how sorry you are, right? He says, change your heart, right? Some of us experience this with our kids when we're trying to help them see the error of their ways and and what they've done to harm a sibling specifically, right? And we kind of mandate that forced apology, right? And, And you're getting lip service like, hey, I'm sorry that I did that, right? But you know, like, man, it hasn't really captured their heart yet. But sometimes you get a glimpse of that when, you, when your child really does rend their heart and it, and it really is breaking their heart because they realize what they've done, right? That's what God's calling for here. He says, I don't want lip service. I don't want outward signs. He said, I want, I want to get the, the attention of your heart and I want your heart changed here, right? Because everything that's being portrayed in chapter two, it doesn't have to happen. Like that's, that's, that's where we see this. Sometimes people will see this and say, oh man, why would I worship that kind of a God? He's a hateful God. He's an angry God. Like he's, a, he's an unmerciful God. No, like look at the mercy. He's saying like, if you don't change, this happens. But if you change, it doesn't have to happen, right? Like, like I, can, I can fix this. I can stop this. It doesn't have to be this way. Failure to repent and turn to him though will lead to increasing judgment. He's like, you think the locusts were bad. You haven't seen anything until this dark army shows up. And this army's fully directed by him, right? Like it answers to him. He utters his voice. And this army responds. And these many disasters are meant to draw our attention to potential greater disasters. We talked about the fact that it makes conversations happen. It gets people moving and thinking. At the end of the day here, God is meant to terrify them with the retribution of their sins so they return to him. It says the verse 10 of chapter two, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. Joel says, you guys need to be terrified of the potential judgment that God will bring upon you if you don't get things right. The announcement of sin and judgment is meant to provoke repentance. The message that rings true here in Joel, though, is that it doesn't have to end this way. People can answer the call to repent and things will be different. The character of God starts to come out in this chapter. Look in verse 17. You get a section there in chapter two where, where again, it calls them to a fast, calls them to repentance. And the implication is that they do it, that they do repent. It says, between the vestibule and the altar, verse 17, let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. 
Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. Fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. Look what he says in verse 25. I will restore restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Man, that's the hope that's extended there in Joel, right? Great judgment, great punishment, great disaster. But when we turn our hearts back to him, it's all thwarted, it's all avoided, right? He says, I'm gonna take that dark army and I'm gonna shove it into the sea, right? It's not gonna come upon you, right? My message of doom has reached your heart. It's brought about change, right? And that changes the outcome now, right? I don't, I don't have to carry out this judgment anymore. God is committed to justice, absolutely. He's absolutely committed to judgment, but he's also committed to mercy and to salvation. These invaders are defeated. The devastated land is restored. His divine presence is brought. It goes on, and we'll look at this passage here more in a minute, but it talks about him pouring out his spirit here at the end of chapter two, and it bringing about lasting change in the people. You know, it's his presence that really defines us as his people. His presence with us, his presence in us. Exodus chapter 33, verse 15, look what the people say. Moses specifically saying to God, he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Man, as Christians, we're defined by the fact that God is with us and he is working good for us. That's what defines us, right? We are his image bearers and he is with us, making us not only God-like, but godly, right? Chapter three, so chapter one, immediate day of the Lord. Chapter two, this potential imminent day of the Lord unless things change. Chapter three is the ultimate day of the Lord. It's here where we get another picture of God as this roaring lion, who comes upon the earth to devastate the nations who have harmed his people, right? In the Old Testament context, that's Israel. We've talked before, New Testament context, we start to see ourselves engulfed in this people group of Israel. We are grafted in, right? So this applies to us as well. He, co- he comes to judge the nations who have been against his people. And we'll see more of that as we close up. All right, let's jump in. Again, another long week of introduction. But here, let's jump into our outline real quick and we'll be done shortly. Number one, what does this mean for us, right? This is Old Testament. Most of us couldn't tell the difference between a locust and a grasshopper. Um, what, What does this message mean for us today, right? Number one, examine yourself in the midst of disruptive circumstances. I'm very thankful that we're able to teach through this during the midst of what we're going through because if we were in the midst of a great economy and things were going great, like this message may fall on deaf ears, right? But we are certainly in a relevant time where I can say, hey, we're, we're being disrupted a little bit right now too. And our circumstances aren't what we thought they were gonna be a few months ago. And, and we have the opportunity to pause and reflect and to think and ponder what is God trying to say to us individually, to us as a church, to us as a nation, to us as a world? What's the message that God would have us hear in the midst of this? Examine yourself in the midst of disruptive circumstances. For our kids, sin will lead to judgment if we don't repent. If we don't repent, right? This is a chance for us to make sure that we are right with God. Because what this little mini day of the Lord is doing, this little COVID-19 blip on the screen of history, man, it's pointing to something greater, Right? We know in the book of Revelation that the, the days will increase where our economy is wrecked and, and it's hard to buy and sell and, and we're persecuted and, and, and dealt with differently because of our faith. Right? Like we don't feel that necessarily right now. Like not, there's not necessarily a distinction being made between Christian and, and non-Christian in the midst of what we're dealing with. But man, those days are coming. Those days are coming, right? And this reminds us in, in the midst of being busy with our schedule and our fun and all the things that we do, it's times like this where it reminds us, oh man, this isn't everything, 
right? Like this isn't how the world ends. The world ends with Jesus coming and then we get ushered into the end of the world, right? Eternity with him. This isn't the best that it gets. And so God steps in and disrupts us when we're feeling like we're in the best that it gets, brings us back down and says, hey, it's bad and it's gonna get worse, right? Before it actually gets fully better. Examine yourself in the midst of disruptive circumstances. Number one, disruptive circumstances remind us of warnings and immediate concern. They remind us of warnings and immediate concern. God warns us that these type of things will happen if our hearts aren't inclined to him, right? Obviously, we would all agree that our nation isn't what it should be. We can even further agree that our churches aren't what they should be, right? So sometimes we, we mix how Christians reacted in the Old Testament with their nation and how we should with our nation. The nations are different, right? Like the nation of Israel was under God. Our, our nation is founded on Christian principles, right? But let's make no distinction there that we are not, we are not Israel as a nation, right? The church is grafted into Israel, not America, right? Um, so we can even say that what really needs to be repentance, yes, for our nation, but certainly within our churches as well, right? Think about the sin and the tolerance within churches today, right? And not even your, your really liberal churches, but even your conservative churches. Maybe even within this church, sin that we tolerate, sin that we don't confess, sin that we don't repent of, sin that we just are comfortable with, right? Like, we have a responsibility to see that there are warnings and concerns in Scripture that we are to turn from our sin. Here's the, here's the real merciful thing about God that sometimes critics miss when they try to talk about the Old Testament God who's just angry at sin, right? God warned Israel that this thing would happen, right? Um, Israel is warned that sin would lead to disaster specifically in the form of locusts and dark armies. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I know I told you guys my sermons were gonna get shorter, but I don't know if they are. I, I just don't know because th- there's, there's, too much, there's too much to cover here, right? I would be doing a disservice to Joel and all his hard work if we didn't cover this thoroughly. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. This is when God is making this covenant, this covenant that we talked about in Hosea. Verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Right? So just kind of a general warning there. Then you fast forward to verse 38. This is Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. It's part of their punishment. If they don't obey God, the locusts will kill their fields. Right? Then you go down to verse 49. And we won't read all of this, even though I would love to. 49 through 68. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. Goes on to talk about all these other horrible things this dark army will do. And God warned them. Right, so we come to the book of Joel, it would be ungodlike for him not to do these things if he told them that he would. Right? God says, Look, I'll take care of you. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will have everything that you need. But if you start going after these other gods, this is what will happen to you. This, this is how I, I am so holy. I cannot allow sin to be tolerated. I can't let you be something you weren't created to be. You were created to be image bearers of me, not image bearers of some other gods. He says, if you, if, you go, if you go after those things, locusts will come and eat your crops. Armies will come and devastate your cities. Fast forward to Joel, and Joel says, hey, we haven't been faithful to the covenant. I'm here as God's spokesman to draw you back. You've already seen the locusts come. Guess what's next on the horizon? That dark army that he talked about in Deuteronomy 28. Those guys are coming if we don't get things fixed, right? There's warnings in Scripture. There's immediate concern for us that if we don't deal with our sin, God will bring punishment upon us. He's doing what he said he would do. Number two, disruptive circumstances point towards hope in light of imminent and ultimate danger, though. This is where we see that he's not just a God of wrath, he's a God of love. 
Israel's sin leads to disaster, yes, but God's mercy creates opportunity for hope. They can avoid this future judgment through an immediate repentance now. One commentator said, knowing the secret of the future that God is about to implement can challenge the hearer to radical obedience in preparation for taking part in the glories of the age to come. Let me read that to you again. Knowing the secret of the future that God is about to implement can challenge the hearer to radical obedience now in preparation for taking part in the glories of the age to come. God is merciful in that he tells us about his judgment before it happens so that we can prepare and get ready and respond accordingly to avoid it. And that's God's mercy and grace. He doesn't have to tell us. He can just carry it out. He can just do it. But he warns us about it. Then he warns us again about it with these little mini days of the Lord. Right? These little days of the Lord are meant to jog our memory, to wake us out of our stupor, to remind us that greater days of judgment are coming. Pause and reflect and repent where repentance needs to take place. Number two, and I only have two today, so we're almost done. Be on the right side of the roar on the day of the Lord. Be on the right side of the roar on the day of the Lord. I told you chapter three is all about this final judgment ultimate day of the Lord, when all these nations are held accountable for how they've treated God's people. And look what it says in verse 16. Man, last week's favorite verse, Hosea 11.10, right? God roars like a lion and his people come running, right? Joel chapter three, verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. You know why he's a refuge? You know why he's, he's, a, he's a stronghold for us here at the, at the final day, at the day of judgment? It's because he's been roaring throughout history and we've been coming as his people like Hosea talks about, right? He calls us forth from death to spiritual life and we come to him because he summons us to him, right? And then we get behind him And on the day of the Lord, when he shows up to judge the nations, he's roaring. It's a different type of roar. It's got a different purpose to it. But we're on the backside of it now. We are with him in the roar versus experiencing the roar, right? The earth is quaking and the world is trembling. And yet we're in in the good part of it, right? We're, We're in the majestic part of it. We're on the right side. Right, And you can't help but get imagery of, of, of Narnia and Aslan showing up with his army, right? And you want to be on his side, right? It becomes very clear as the, as the, as the, as the evil queen and her, her dominions are, are immediately subjected to his authority. Right? He comes roaring here, and you want to be on the right side of the roar. You don't want to be in front of it where he is roaring at you. You want him to be roaring with you right? Because he's already called you with his previous war and he summoned you to come to him. Number one, the day of the Lord is a day of justice on the earth. This valley I told you is described as the valley of decision. It's also described as the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means Yahweh judges. And what you see, and we won't take time to read this, but this is a short book, so you should be able to read this this week and really gain a lot from it because you've, you've got a foundation now to operate off of. But in verses 1 through 16, you have God confronting evil amongst the nations. He's turning violence back on them. He's performing justice to right all the wrongs. These evil nations are described as a crop ripe with wickedness. They've, they're guilty of theft and slavery and bloodshed. And this battle that takes place here feels more like a harvest, as there will be no defense against a wrathful God. It's a day of justice, but number two, it's a day of refuge for God's people, as we see in this verse in 16 and 17. We stand with the roaring lion because the day of the Lord fell on our sin at the cross, right? He is a merciful and gracious God. Joel's quoting, and this is where he's a man who's rooted in Scripture, and when you're rooted in Scripture, it helps you process your disruptive circumstances around you. Joel's quoting from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by 
but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's getting his ideas here in his book, Joel is, from that passage in Exodus chapter 34. He's a man who knows scripture. Verse 13 of chapter 2, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. God's gracious and merciful character makes salvation possible. It makes salvation possible. What's our role in it? Well, it's, it's our role to acknowledge our sin, right? Chapter 1, 13 and 14, chapter 2, 12 and 16, those are those calls to repentance and fasting and acknowledgement of sin. What's our tendency typically? It's to defend ourselves rather than admit our sin though, right? But, but the path to salvation is to admit that we are wrong, to admit that we are sinners, and then to respond by calling on his name, right? Joel chapter 2, verse 32 Because he's a merciful God, because he's a gracious God, it allows us to, verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because he's merciful and gracious. That theme carries over into the New Testament, right? Romans chapter 10, verse 13. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts chapter 2. I wish we had time to, to talk more about this pouring out of the Spirit. It's a big theme in, in Joel, and it's certainly true in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit's being poured out. People are speaking in tongues. Crazy things are happening. Everybody's like, what's happening? What's going on? Right? And, and Peter's like, this is what Joel's talking about in chapter 2 of Joel. Right? He's talking about when in the end, God's going to pour out his Spirit. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 2. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day shall come that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's preaching a message from Joel chapter 2. Right? Go back and look at the end of chapter 2. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And Peter says, here, it's happening. And and he draws the people's attention and says, "Uh, that means the day of the Lord's coming soon, right? Because that follows Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3. The day of the Lord's coming. And just like it says in Joel chapter 2, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He tells them that in Acts 2.21. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. The men of Israel hear this. They're concerned about it. Because look what it says. Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are some of the people that were there, present, crucifying Jesus. right? Because he says, You crucified him. You crucified the Son of God. Day of the Lord's coming. But he's a merciful and gracious God. He pours out his Spirit. And you don't have to end with judgment. Men are cut to the heart, right? They're rendering their heart like Joel tells them to do, right? Their hearts are being cut and they're like, what do we do, Peter? Peter says, call out to the name of the Lord. He's merciful and gracious. You can be saved. You can be saved today and be saved in the future, right? Be saved today to be saved in the future when that day of the Lord comes. Note back in Joel it's, it's God who's doing the calling here, right? We call out to the name of the Lord. It's really, it's really God calling us first, though, right? Lest we forget that. Verse 32 of chapter 2, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom called upon the Lord. Nope. The survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Right? Lest we try to take any credit for our calling out to God for salvation, lest we take any credit for our hearts being rendered and torn, right? It's the lion of Judah who tears our hearts open for us, right? It's the lion of Judah who calls us to repentance. It's the lion of Judah who is roaring before the day of the Lord to summon his people, and his people will respond. His people will come, Hosea tells us, and they'll get behind the lion, and on the day of judgment, the lion will roar. And we will be with him. 
we will be with him. He's gracious and merciful. His outpouring of his spirit makes that repentance and renewal possible, right? Acts chapter 2, the spirit is working in these men's hearts. They are being drawn to repentance. And it brings about a renewal of all creation here at the end of Exodus cha- or Joel chapter 3. This is what we'll close with. The renewal of all creation takes place. The land is being restored. Final day of justice brings restoration of the world. It's like a new Eden. You talked about, we talked about the years being restored that the locusts had taken. Captives are being brought home. Look at the fluids that are flowing uh, in chapter 3, verse 18. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. The, the, the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. I mean, you just got fluids going everywhere from this luscious land that God has restored, right? It's like Eden. It's like Eden. Justice has been served. God's people are ushered into eternity. Kind of a summary for Joel. Sin happens. Human sin, failure brings destruction and devastation. God responds with the locusts. The people respond. God's gonna judge the sinners, but longs to show mercy to those who will own up to their sin and confess it. The people do that. They're they're challenged to call out to the Lord to repent. And there's that hope that's attached to it, right? God will defeat evil in the world inside of us as well. He's gonna defeat the world in evil in the world and the evil inside of us. He does that through his spirit and he brings healing to make all things new. Who can endure God's wrath? Those who turn to him in repentance. Those who call out to him. That's my challenge to you today. In the midst of a crisis that we continue to weather right now, um, that we would take time to pause and reflect and self-examine, right? Obviously, the first step is to, to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith, that we're believers, right? Then the next step is to make sure that we're believing believers, that we're moving forward in our faith, that we're not tolerating sin, that if there's sin present that needs to be confessed, that we allow God to convict us of it that we listen to his call, we listen to his roar, we listen to his voice, that we don't continue to play the, the role of Gomer before she responds to his love, but we play the, the, the post-restoration uh, of Gomer, that we play the role of, of the faithful bride, right? That we, we recognize the Spirit's been given to us, that we can, we can fight sin, we can live faithfully. And it gives us great hope about our future that when we read these judgment passages, these don't apply to us anymore, right? This threat of, of looming ultimate day of judgment doesn't apply to us. There is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. There is no more remaining wrath. There is no more dark army. There is no more locusts that come to, to wreak havoc upon us for eternity. We've been spared from that. We look forward to the day of the Lord. It's a day where God steps in and brings judgment, but he also brings salvation, Right? He brings salvation for those who are on the right side of the roar. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this small book. I pray that what's been talked and discussed and shared today would give all of us a foundation to return to the, to the book of Joel, to be able to read it with more confidence now, to have a foundation to know what's being said and talked about. God, I pray that even this week we would return to it and, and find great encouragement from it. God, help us to to pause and respond and reflect appropriately during this time. God, help us to repent where repentance needs to take place. God, help us to change where change needs to take place. God, we look forward to the day where you bring justice on this earth. In the midst of seeing so much injustice around us, God, we look forward to the day where that will all be settled in the valley of decision, where you will come to judge. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.